The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Hi, everybody. Wow, nice to see you here. And um, Jamie and Jane on YouTube, thank you for your note. Glad you're with us. Hmm. So, um, I've been contemplating the living a reflective life, right? A dharmic life. And, uh, oh yeah. Yeah, please. (laughs) So I've been um, contemplating what it means to live a reflective life, a dharmic life. And, um, you know, in in, uh, simple terms, right, it's it's not dharma to cause harm, and it it is dharma to refrain from causing harm. And uh, the discourse... um, Advice to Rahula and Majjama Nikaya 61 is a, a really great um, set of instructions for living a reflective life. So I'm going to talk some about that. And I'm also going to talk about how much sila, ethics, non-harming are a part of that. And, um, and how... maybe some ways that we can engage with reflection on some layers that maybe we don't normally do. Um, And some of the personal, like, and uh, biopsychological aspects of our minds and beings that can impact and complicate our connection with our experience um, and our reflection process. So... Um, yeah, so, you know, um, you know, the Dharma is a manifestation of non-harming. It's the embodiment of non-harming, right? And this becomes possible as we live a life that's reflective. Um, and, um, you know, sila... And our ethical actions and this non-harming is incredibly important aspect of that, but also uh, is deeply connected to how well we can settle, how we can be mindful and concentrate, and and that leads to uh, our capacity to connect with wisdom. So they're separate but deeply intertwined and connected. So, in the discourse um, on advice to Rahula, um, the way the Buddha teaches it is often kind of considered uh, just a, a foundational kind of teaching for how to live a dharmic life, right? And so, uh, Rahula is the Buddha's son, and the Buddha is said to have left his home the night that his son was born, to go and and to seek happiness, a different way of living. 
and he came back to his village when Rahula was about seven. And um, it's one of the ways I've heard the story is that um, his mom probably wasn't so happy with the Buddha for his splitting, <laughs> leaving him, her and his son. Um, told her son to go find the Buddha and to tell his father that um, he was there to collect his inheritance, his birthright, to ask for it. And so Rahula comes um, to meet the Buddha and uh, relays this message. And what the Buddha does is uh, instructs Sariputta to... uh, welcome Rahula into the um, monastic tradition to become a monk. (laughs) Samana and training. Uh, Not probably what he expected nor his mom expected, right? But um, So he was about seven. And this teaching is the first teaching. There were three teachings that that I'm really aware of that are big teachings to Rahula and the suttas. And this was the first of the three. And I don't know how old exactly Rahula was. I've heard seven, I've heard nine, um, but young. And um, so, you know, the setting is that Rahula's, um, you know, been meditating in his little spot and he sees that the Buddha's, so he prepares a seat for the Buddha and gets water for his feet so the Buddha can wash his feet when he arrives. And, um, comes and, you know, the Buddha comes and sits down and uh, talks to Rahula. And um, kind of the, sounds like sort of the first thing he says to him is that um, those who are not embarrassed in knowingly telling a lie have thrown away their life as a samana. So it's implied, it's not said in the story that Rahula lied, but it's a pretty clear implication and uh, the Buddha takes the bowl of water for washing his feet and says something like see how little water there is in here it's like throwing this water out and wasting it and then it's like whatever little water is here turning the bowl upside down and wasting it and and then um, and then he goes on uh, and he says to the to Rahuli says what is the purpose of a mirror And when his son answers, he says, for reflection. And then the Buddha proceeds to give him teachings on how he is to use his actions as a mirror for reflecting on the consequences of what he does. And uh, the Pali word for reflection has the same dual meaning as it does in English, right? So... It can refer to the reflection in the mirror as well as when we're reflecting in our mind, when we're contemplating, when we're reflecting on things, giving it time. Yeah, the consequences. So both are here, right? Watching what what we do, seeing that, seeing the consequences of that, and contemplating in advance um, and afterwards. Um, so in this lesson, um, he is 
you know, speaking to Rahula about reflecting on all actions, body, speech, and mind. So our thoughts included. And not just um, on our actions, uh, but their consequences on ourselves, on others, and both self and other. And to help him um, and guide him on what he should reflect on, to help him with this task, the Buddha instructs Rahula to consider three questions. So if he is anticipating whatever this action is will cause harm, he should not initiate it. He should stop, not proceed. So that's before, right? During an action, so we assume, let's say, he thinks it's not going to cause a problem, but if he's reflecting and he notices harm is occurring while in the middle of an action, he should stop. Sounds really simple, doesn't it? (laughs) Is it always this simple? I don't think so, right? It's not always. Sometimes it's so clear, but... Yeah, yeah, and um, and then afterwards, if Rahula realizes that the activity has led to harm of any kind, that he should first tell this to his teacher or to a wise spiritual companion, and then practice restraint in the future. Now, if Rahula understands his actions are wholesome, skillful, not causing harm, and leading to happy consequences, he can engage in them freely, says the Buddha. Yeah. So, he also kind of talks about um, these, these, there's this three pairing in here, harm and non-harming. Wholesome and unwholesome, which also could be thought of as skillful and unskillful. And suffering and happiness, dukkha and sukha. So we have reflecting before, during, and after. And we have reflecting on the impact for self, other, and both. And then we have reflecting on these three potential um, ways to evaluate what's been, what we're contemplating doing or have done. So the Buddha gives him this guidance and he doesn't say, okay, don't do these things. He says, reflect, right? So this is so much about the practice. The art of our practice is, you know, we, it's no, it's impossible for us to uh, have it be about just what we do and don't do, right? It's a complicated life, complicated relationships, so many possibilities of things that can and can happen. It's so interesting how much the Buddha pointed not to these you know, mandates, but rather to staying aware, staying present and connected um, and, and reflective about what's happening, what's happening. And in, this, in these instructions, um, 
you know, he is really, really enforcing, reinforcing the idea of impact over intention. So often we get caught, right? If we've done something, maybe I should just speak for myself. If I've done something and my intention was not consciously to cause harm, um, but I have, you know, some some way triggered something in somebody or caused some harm. It's uh, can be a little bit um, automatic to want to respond by clarifying what my intention was instead of just staying with what the impact was. Just really honoring that because that's the consequence, right? And it m- may not be that I did anything horrible, but if the consequence of an interaction is to cause some distress, I want to attend to that first, right? Not not try and protect my ego or my my goodness, right? My my image or whatever it is. But it gets tricky. It it can be sticky in this space, right? So I really appreciate this focus on noticing the impact having that feedback be what we pay attention to, that we honor that more than sort of what we were thinking we were doing or trying to do. I also think it's incredibly inclusive to really spell out that we don't want to harm ourselves, we don't want to harm anybody else, and we don't want to harm both, right? So it's not like, um, well, I can, I can harm myself but not harm you. Right? Or harm you, but not myself. It's like, no, no, no. We, we don't want to harm anybody. The other thing that um, really stands out to me that seems quite, um, I don't know, really uh, important and social, you know, it's uh, relational, is that the Buddha tells us to go talk to somebody when we reflect and we've seen that what we've done is causing harm, he encourages us to, to, to share it, to not keep it quiet and hidden, to make amends potentially even, right? To, to make it, to bring it into the world and not, not just let it sort of be quiet inside. So all of this says to me, you know, uh, we're living a life of caring to care. We need to care about what our experience has been, what things have been going on. And, um, and to do that means we need to, to look, to listen, to relook. And I think that... Um, for me, another area that, uh, where this is uh, invites a deepening is, you know, how do we really know when we're causing harm or not causing harm? How often, you know, are we actually paying attention to the subtle suffering that we're experiencing or asking others around us? if we've harmed them in some way? How often are we just sort of assuming that what we're doing is the norm and it's fine or 
whatever, right? There's, it, it would be impossible to do this constantly, but, um, but it's also, well, maybe it's not impossible, right? But it, it's a challenge. And um, again, this is where I come back to sort of the incredibly important part of being connected with our direct experience and sila. To me, uh, I think the sila points to experiential, very much experiential. Um, and what's happening in our bodies and our hearts and our minds and noticing contraction, you know, noticing dukkha, um, reactivity in our lives. And noticing also the opposite, right? When we feel ease at ease and we feel happy and we feel like we've been skillful. I was uh, reflecting, I, you know, I had this question, huh, did I avoid causing harm today? Do you know, did you, can you think of anything, this is just an invitation for reflection, but can you think about a moment in your day where you avoided causing harm? I was kind of thinking, well, you know, some some days I will accidentally kill an insect, like, I didn't, that didn't happen today that I know of, right? And I don't often sit there and think at the end of the day. I might think about it if I killed an, ac- an insect, right? It will, that will come up for me. But um, I don't often just say, oh, well, did I avoid causing harm today? I think so. I think so. Um... And then was there a time today where you reflected before you were choosing to act? Was there a time today where you um, thought about what you were going to do and decided, yeah, I can do this. This is, this is wholesome. This is skillful. You know, this will bring happiness. Did you stop an activity because you noticed that it wasn't? continue because you noticed it still was? Did you reflect afterwards? So uh, one of the reasons I think that it can be a little tricky or that we might be able to look um, a little bit more deeply um, is that we actually have... um, there's, you know, the felt sense of our experience, right? We have a nervous system, and we have something called interioception and exterioception. And so we have all these processes happening that are kind of, um, hap- you know, taking in interior. What are the sensations happening in my body inside? What am I receiving from the world? What's the external sensations that are coming in? And um, and then we have a mind that is uh, based 
on, you know, it predicts, it's a prediction organ. And it predicts based on past experience. So, you know, that means that when we're experiencing something internally or externally, and the brain is associating with what past experiences, it may or may not be getting it right. Right? It may or may not be getting it right. So this idea, again, of how important it is to continually reflect, right? Because the brain will catch up, things will catch up. As our experience continues to unfold, we will be taking in more data, right? We'll be getting more feedback. We're open to it and continuing to attend. But it requires this sort of a, a constant attunement and reattunement. So there's that process happening. There's the Vedana response, right? The, the sort of feeling tone of our experience. I've had people um, say to me that they, they think that they're feeling anxiety. And then later, upon further reflection, they realize they're actually excited, right? So this is an example of when they think it's anxiety, they have a... It's an unpleasant response. When they recognize its excitement, then it feels more like a a pleasant response. Either one of those interpretations creates a different behavioral movement, right? So if something feels good, then we're tending to be more open and to follow it. If something doesn't feel good, we tend to pull back and shut down from it. But sometimes the information, the somatic information and the story or the historical data don't all match up. So in one of the ways that um, one of the ways one of the strengths that the the Dharma speaks about is uh, these we have this something called Hirian of Tapa, shame and remorse. And they're said to be the guardians of the world, right? And, um, and what is the treasure of conscience? There is the case where a disciple of the Noble One feels shame at the thought of engaging in bodily misconduct, verbal misconduct, mental misconduct. This is called the treasure of conscience. But I know for me that shame, right, is, is complicated. This is an example of sort of historical you know, the brain's history of experience with shame, how, you know, I can see in my own mind that that um, there are times when I can feel that little nudge of shame, like, oh, no, this is probably not a good action to take. And I feel like there are times that I don't, I just don't want to feel, like it feels, there's something about not wanting to feel shame. I don't want to feel the sense of shame. So I think that there's this way that we can, especially when we've been really shamed and humiliated or um, feel a lot of just, we just generally tend that way. Um, I think we can shut ourselves off from some of our inner wisdom, right? If we we're, aren't clearly noticing our reactivity to something like the more pure form 
maybe of shame, which might be, and I think about the Western perspective of shame, Brené Brown, who's a shame researcher, she says, shame is I'm bad. Guilt is I've done something bad, right? And that's an identification, I am, right? And from a Buddhist perspective, we have the opportunity to really say, okay, I'm not my actions, right? So if, 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 I can, if I can make that shift and not identify, I think we don't have to have shame become toxic. We can actually use it to support ourselves. So um, there's some interesting research, you know, around shame um, that uh, it's... It, there's some people who hypothesize it is our primary social emotion. You know, it's an interesting thought. Um, it's shame informs us, right, of an internal state of inadequacy, un- unworthiness, dishonor, regret, or disconnection. Is a- another person's view. Another way to say it is shame is a clear signal that our positive feelings have been interrupted. That's kind of a simple simple way with less reactivity in it, right? Sort of, oh, there's something here, the positivity, the flow has kind of halted here. And, um, you know, when I'm thinking about trying to live a life where I'm not causing harm, and I, uh, if I get too caught up in trying to never cause harm, it's... uh, I can make myself feel very, you know, unworthy and bad. But I really uh, have to think and focus that it's not really about being perfect. That it's much more about staying connected. That it's never too late to reflect. That we can reflect before, during, after, and after, and after, and after. Right? That we don't... It's never over. We don't have to. You know, in a way, if we... If we uh, think it's done, we cut ourselves off from the opportunity for kind of letting something free itself, I guess, is the way I'd put it. Um, and uh, one of the things that I found when I was looking into all this research on shame, I got kind of fascinated with it. Um, in Japan, um, in the... The teaching and the teaching style, from what I read in the research, is actually to utilize mistakes as uh, for learning in the classroom. So they actually are students are directed to find their own way through difficult problems, and then the teachers lead discussions about the common errors and why they might seem plausible. And um, so, in this way, they they're really bringing sort of uh, that opportunity to struggle and to make a mistake into the environment as a a place for sharing and learning. Um, Whereas in America, uh, the students are, you know, taught how to avoid making mistakes. That's the real emphasis in the teaching in general from the research I was reading. And so students are rewarded and praised when they don't make mistakes, right? And in general, here, if we make mistakes, they equate to some sense of failure and hence shame. There's a a great quote from um, Eleanor Roosevelt. 
It's uh, learn from the mistakes of others. You can't live long enough to make them all yourself. Right? I love that. It's so great. Um, so, you know, Dharma practices, uh, you know, it's not an escape, right? It's an intimate meeting with the discomfort of reactivity, which is stress and suffering, the first noble truth. And it's incredibly important to turn toward that when it happens. So, um, one of the, uh, this is just a, a very small example um, of my personal experience, but I picked my daughter up from the airport last night. And uh, I had dropped my son off at 4 a.m. And I was picking her up at 10 p.m. last night. And um, I had sent her a text during the day just letting her know. I'd been up since 4, so I was just, you know, hoping I'd be there to pick her up. And when she got in the car, she made this comment about, um, it was kind of this sarcastic comment about, you know, oh, I'm glad, you know, thanks for going through all the trouble to come and pick me up, right? And there's just this, like, little edge in her sassy voice. <laughs> and uh, and I just, you know, I was like, I, I reacted, I, I I definitely reacted, and I um, instead of kind of looking at the impact, I was there defending my intent. No, I, I said I'd pick you up. <laughs> I was just letting you know I'd been up, and um, and so it was kind of this like you know, mah, mah, mah. <laughs> Charlie Brown sounds, um, <laughs> and and then this morning. Right. Um, I was th- reflecting on it and had a little bit of sleep and I thought about it and I thought, you know, I, kinda, I, I think I hurt her feelings. And that's, I, I think, you know, I think that I didn't, I, I couldn't see that or say that because I was reacting. And so I just sent her a text this morning and saying, you know, I'm sorry if I hurt your feelings yesterday, you know. And she didn't respond to that text, but she did to several others, right? So I knew that it was okay, right? And uh, so that's an example for me of, you know, reflecting afterwards, right? And not just right after, right after, but the next morning after, and maybe even after it had come up a few times for me in my mind. It had come up. Um, there's this, uh, there's this really beautiful, inspiring idea in attachment therapy theory, which is that, um, you know, there's rupture and repair. And we don't need to avoid rupture. It's just, we just need to pair it with repair. So here's a quote from Bonnie Badenoch, who wrote a book called The Heart of Trauma, Healing the Embodied Brain in the Context of Relationships. And she says, When we experience a break in connection, followed by repeated attempts at repair, until the bond is restored, we build implicit pathways of resilience. So when we have a break in connection, followed by restoring that bond, right? We build an implicit pathway of resilience, of bouncing back. 
and we come to know in a visceral way. And so this is coming back to that idea of the body, the somatic knowing that when things break down interpersonally, someone will return to help us come back into relationship. And this wired-in optimism and expectation makes it much more likely that we will form lasting relationships that have this quality as we accept and then rejoice in our humanness. And we offer this vital gift of rupture and repair to those around us. And I think this teaching that the Buddha offers is, is, is you know, sort of supporting our ability to repair if we don't think it's too late and we think, you know, don't expect ourselves to have to be perfect. Maybe the perfection is in recognition and reconnection. Um, So this other part of connection around this teaching of going and telling your teacher, right, if you've done something that you think caused harm. Um, Gill says, he wrote, confessing to someone else and exercising restraint in the future are characterized as growth in the path. Right, this is... You know, it's it, if you make a mistake, you harm somebody, and you go and you talk to your spiritual friend, it's not considered that you've regressed. It's actually considered growth, right? Yeah. And um, back to the... Well, let's see here. Yeah. Um, so, well, speaking of Gil, so... Um, I'll say, you know, one uh, one of the things that happened, a couple things happened for me when I was early and uh, in my relationship with Gil. One was that I was helping pack boxes to book, book boxes to ship off to the prisons. And I was in this room and there's this beautiful table, this conference room table. And uh, I had this big heavy tape gun, very heavy tape gun, <laughs> And I pulled it off the package, and you know how they have those ridge ends. To, so I break the tape, and boom, take a big chunk out of the table, right? And I was just mortified, and he wasn't there at the time, right? And I just remember being like, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, what, what am I going to say? I felt so, you know, non-mindful and, you know, talk about shame. And, uh, well, I couldn't, you know, and I'm like, oh, i got to tell him, right? So I tell him. And he was so kind, right? He was so kind. And uh, there was another situation where I uh, was managing in that bell. I hit the bell so loud, everybody jumped at the end of the meditation, right? It was just like, oh, my God. And, uh, you know, one of the things that he said, I don't know, both times, one of the times was, you know, there are no mistakes here. There are no mistakes here. Like, it's all okay. It's all included. So this... To me, this is such an important balancing um, point to um, our intention to practice a harmless, harmless life, right? Is to really hold all of this. And we don't have to be perfect, right? We just need to stay connected. We need to stay aware and open. Um, 
And mistakes, you know, like we learn a lot from them. Most people I talk to have learned more from their mistakes if they're willing to open up and, and sort of process them and share them, not keep them in, in secrecy. Most people feel like they've learned a lot more from those things than just a simple success, mostly probably because we didn't have to try so hard when something's successful, right? Um, so here's another, um, another quote on... Um, Mistakes, um, failures are not just inevitable. Excuse me, failures are not just inevitable, but are a necessary part of the process. A good mother is not one whose baby never cries, but one who knows how to respond and soothe her crying baby. Right? And we learn that to be part of the solution, we must be willing to ex- be experienced as part of the problem. So, I think I'll, I'll just one more quote and I'll, I'll wrap up. And if anybody has any comments, um, anything they want to share, I'd be delighted to hear anything at all from you. Um, but uh, this is a quote by Sue Johnson, who uh, does a lot of attachment couples work she says love is a constant process of tuning in connecting missing and misreading cues disconnecting repairing and finding deeper connection it's a dance of meeting and parting and finding each other again minute to minute and day to day So, any, any responses to these reflections? Did they connect with you in some way and feel relevant to the teachings the Buddha gave to Rahula or how you engage? Let's, um, Bill, get him the microphone. I don't think you need to stop. Tanya, during your um, talk, mm-hmm. I was got me to thinking about something. I, I like to think of my body as an early warning system. Yeah. So if I'm about to say or do something yeah. harmful, uh, you know, the anger results in all kinds of uh, events in the body, contractions, you know, in yeah. heart or stomach or clenched jaw, clenched fingers, clenched hand. Yeah. Uh, and then I, what I got to, what I thought for the understood for the first time is, if if you're about to do a physical harm, those early warning systems in your body are real obvious. Like you know, like you know, let's just yes. say a raised fist. Yeah. Boy. That's obvious. that's easy to notice. Yeah. Comparatively. Yeah. Um, speech um, is it's harder mm-hmm. to notice the early warning systems. The chain of events 
is so fast. Mm-hmm. You get ticked off, and then mm-hmm. it's really, I mean, they're there. Mm-hmm. And then I like to think that um, if you meditate a lot, time kind of slows down, and you, you have more time, yeah. it seems like, to notice all that stuff and to maybe, oh, I won't go there. And then if you're having thoughts that are harmful, Mm -hmm. those go by too fast. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so, um, I mean, my example with my daughter is a great example of speech that, you know, not like I said anything horrible. I didn't swear. I didn't say anything mean. But the reactivity was there, right? And I think... We just start to try and tune more and more into just that, that reactivity, that feeling, right? There's still a feeling in the body of clenching or tightening or, you know, for me it often feels like uh, a pulling back, like there's something that feels like it's pulling back. So I agree, it's harder. And that the practice, you know, the more we slow down, um, and also there's, you know, mindful listening practices, right, where we can really um, pay attention, purposefully pay attention to our body as we're speaking, purposefully slow our speech down. And these things help. You know, I don't think I've done that practice. It sounds, like, it sounds great. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Bill. Appreciate your sharing. I um, found this very timely coming after a, a holiday that usually is spent with many family members. And um, We had a little family drama, (laughs) um, as many people do, I guess, around these holidays. And uh, so I was reflecting a lot about what you were saying um, in regard to those circumstances itself and trying to remain out of the fray and not get activated and... um, wildly failing (laughs) at that um, and trying to recoup. But what Bill was saying about, you know, using your body as an early warning system, Mm -hmm. I don't know if it is... um, I'm not sure what it is, but it seems the more I've practiced that when um, I get activated or when I do something where I feel like I've caused harm is I actually feel the pain of it more. And I don't know if it's because I'm finally noticing it, how badly it feels, or because I've become more sensitized to it. I'm not sure what that is, but... Um, Maybe both. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, it's a great subject for timely. Yeah, and let me just say, um, I think another complicating factor is... Um, if we're really tuned into that, uh oh, I'm you know feeling harm, and there's some degree of that um, sh- slight shame response. I'll call it a clean shame response, a non-toxic response. 
this the the nervous system is still likely moving into actually shame physiology which means that our capacity to think and reflect uh diminish are diminished and we be, move more into a frozen state so it makes it harder it makes it harder to like to have access to full access right to our capacity to connect and relax and all of that. So I think it's just it's just it's a challenge because we're dealing with a physiology that wants us to do the opposite of what we're going to try and do. I also just wanted to say the trains are unbelievably active tonight. <laughs> it's nice to hear them again. <laughs> Thank you all so much for being here. And, um, may the time together be of benefit to you and all those you meet and everybody and the whole world, all beings. So be well. Thank you. <laughs>